My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Again, with your Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy. You know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Are we alone on this earth? Are we alone in this realm? An assumption posed in the form of a question. If your family thinks you're crazy, you may agree we are not. And if you have the opportunity to behold the grand anti-Diluvian stone megaliths that span this earth, you may ask, could we humans have done this alone? Some say we were once greater. Some say there was once a greater species of being on this earth. Some say that being even had a hand in our early development, and in fact, maybe never left, guiding human affairs ever since. Here to sort these variety of theories out through the darkness of the night sky is a man named Neil Guar, founder of Portal to Ascension. He's a philosopher, a researcher and a speaker joining us here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast i'm mystic mark and thank you for tuning in enjoy this episode with neil guar we have shifted out of this age in 1700 ad we shifted out of the kali yuga into the 200 year transitory phase between the kali yuga and the dwarpa yuga which is the next age the theme of the Kali Yuga is the theme of hierarchy, which means you have a hierarchical thing society. The authority, meaning you give up your power to authority, and delusion, where we consider the complete opposite to be better for us, right? And then the theme of the Dwarpa Yuga is the age of sovereignty, and the age of energy, and the age of ideological societies. Those are the three ages. So what that means is what happened after 1700? Well, electricity, light bulb, energy. And then what happened in 1900? Literally two to three years after full emergence into this new age, quantum physics, Max Planck, Einstein, Tesla. And all of a sudden when we leave the transitory phase in 1900, we start getting people that aren't dealing with Newtonian physics anymore. We're now dealing with subatomic physics, quantum physics, and these individuals that are dealing with subatomic physics are spiritual. Albert Einstein, consciousness. Max Planck, consciousness. Tesla, you probably even channel DTs at this point.
Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, talking to Neil Guar. Neil, for those who have never heard of you before, please, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found out about the the podcast? Because you reached out to me. Yes. So my name is Neil. Hello, everybody. I'm the founder of Portal to Ascension. How I found out about the podcast, I'll start with that, was researching, just hashtagging keywords in podcast platforms. You know, <laughs> something that like just keywords that I we do events on and things that I'm interested in. And basically, you're one of the podcasts that showed up and then we reached out to you. Right on. So that, that, was, that was the connection that began this relationship that could flourish into many things. Yeah, indeed. And I asked that because I wonder if the title resonates with you. Does your family think you're crazy? They did think I was crazy. And they, if I was to spend more time talking to them about what I do, they wouldn't want to hear it. So, cause basically they, my dad, like, for example, a few years ago, like four years ago, my dad and I had this like full blown argument and he was like, what's up with all this alien stuff? You know, he freaked out on me. And, and then a couple years after that, when he was like, what are you doing with your life? You know? And I tried to show him some UFO documents. He like went really, really crazy and upset and started screaming and shouting and stuff. So yeah, definitely thinks I'm crazy, but doesn't want to even really deal with it or even think about it. It was an issue before I was actually doing it full time and making a living from it. Now that I'm making a living from it, they've kind of backed off. Right. You know, as, as we tend to hear on the show and, yeah, yeah, that that is unfortunate <laughs> when there is that kind of unwillingness to be open about something that you really care about. It's something that I faced on many different fronts throughout my life. So it's a, a pleasure to have you here. So take us back to, you know, who you were when you first got into this. Was aliens the, the tipping point, the topic that really fascinated you the most from a young age? Or what really got you into this whole field? Because aliens is really just one side of it yeah it's really just one facet of what we have to discuss today but what what really sparked this journey for you neil well i was raised in england right i was born into a hindu family because i'm I'm indian and my parents you know follow the hindu religion and i moved to california when i was 12. so as a kid i pretty much did what my parents told me to do in in regards to religion and i would even sing i would even singing bhajans which are the hymns at temple you know every week there would be something going on religious and i never really had the opportunity to think about why i was doing it i was just following everything blindly i came to the us at age 12 it continued that way i even went to like a sunday school for hinduism in which they're teaching us the bhagavad gita you know and the mahabharata which are all hindu texts and um still was just kind of, it was just a social community thing. You know, I'd go to temple to hang out with my friends. Not, I'd never even thought about the end result of God, you know? And the only time I ever um, said anything to God directly was like when most people do is when something went wrong in your life and you're like, God help me. You know, that was, that was pretty much it. And then I graduated in 2000. I went to college at Kelsey Fullerton. I'd been writing poetry already at this point for a couple of years, but it was like, it was more like, it was more straight up poetry than spoken word. But when I was 18, 19, I started creating some spoken word pieces and, and also freestyle rapping. I was rapping a lot. So in, in my writings, in my raps, I would say things like black holes 
interdimensional travel, aliens, you know, I would say those words, but I wasn't into this world yet. I was even listening to Tool, you're probably familiar with Tool, <clears throat> super conscious lyrics, you know, actually in alignment with everything that we basically do. And I didn't even, I wasn't even fully awake. So even the music that I was surrounding myself with was like self-fulfilling prophecy almost because it was like around this energy. So as time progressed, when I was like 19, 2001, 2002, I started researching some of the words that I was writing in my poetry. I was trying to expand my vocabulary for my hip hop and for my spoken word. And also I was curious about like religion in general and because I was raised Hindu, but I was also raised celebrating Christmas and most Hindus celebrate Christmas and we don't have a disbelief in Jesus. Actually, most Hindus believe don't have any animosity to religions except for Islam. And the Islamic one comes from the fact that they were conquered by Islam and um, Islamic people. And then the Pakistani Indian conflict that occurred, that was the collective trauma that made them not accept Islam, you know? So, but they don't really ever spend time judging religions for the most part. So I was pretty much raised in that energy, watching like the King of Kings and Jesus stuff during Christmas time every year. And I had already had an understanding that Jesus came for a certain group of people that needed him at that moment. And maybe different prophets came down to the earth at specific times for this. So as I was had this kind of perspective, I decided to start researching and figuring out what is the root of all religion. If I'm, a, I'm raised in Hinduism and, but I have this open mentality to it's not the only way. And I already knew at that point, one thing I did like about Hinduism is there is no conventional way to convert to it. Right. Whereas all these religions literally went out on crusades to convert you, but Hinduism never had that. So I wanted to know why is it that this one religion accepts everything, but all these other religions that I accept are telling me that this is the only way to God. And if you don't follow this way, you're going to be going to hell. Right. So what is the root of all religion? Writing poetry on like quantum physics kind of energy stuff, finding out the root of all religion, searching it on the internet led me to four individuals, all who I've worked with, some quite substantially. William Henry, who I've done a lot of work with, and who I'll tell you what they speak on, just so you kind of know. He's like an investigative mythologist. He's one of the head people in Ancient Aliens, and basically looks at all these ancient scriptures in Egypt and Samaria, you know, Samaria and beyond, through the aspect of spirituality and ascension and the light body teachings. And then Nassim Haramein, who basically is proving through quantum physics that we're all interconnected, mathematical. And I was an Indian with this linear mindset. I needed to have that appeased, you know? And then Jim Self, who talked about Merkaba light bodies and how we can use our light bodies to transport our ast bodies astrally. And then Jordan Maxwell, the occult information, right? So that was all at the same exact time, 2001. So as I was getting this, I was trying to find out the root of all religion. Now go back to almost what you started with, like was where was the alien stuff in there? In the immediate introduction was to the Sumerian scriptures. And I just did a 10 hour conference yesterday called ancient Sumerian Mesopotamia. So I'm like fresh from like 10 hours of Sumer, you know? And um, in the Sumerian scriptures, I found that there were all these similar stories to religions all over the world. The Moses story, the David and Goliath story, stories from the Hindu texts, the Noah story. And some of them were verbatim, literally took the exact words and just changed it or took the words and just made it a human rather than a hybrid giant alien, you know? So 
that took me to the aspect of the Anunnaki and discovering that and how the Sumerian individuals knew about our solar system, the way the planets were positioned, advanced understanding of quantum physics. And all of a sudden, and I said, wait a second, the ancients had a more advanced awareness of our universe than we even do now, things that we're rediscovering now. Maybe we're not the most advanced we've ever been. Maybe it's arrogant to think that we're, we're so superior, but there may have been other civilizations in the past that completely got wiped from history books that, or from history, we can't even find any evidence of them that had a more advanced awareness. That was the beginning that started me down the rabbit hole and, you know, kept going from there. The next eight years from 2001, 2008, I went deep, deep, deep into ET stuff, but also occult information and the elite and what they're doing to me. So for a good eight years, I progressed into a lot of fear energy because of all the information I was getting into about what they did to us, the bloodlines, how they controlled us until I eventually shifted out of that. See, now we're getting to a part of the the conversation that I really want to highlight on, and maybe it's a little too early or maybe not. Tell us how you shifted, because I think a lot of people come to the show with that exact experience. You know, they're in the midst of the rabbit hole. It's dark. They yeah. lost the batteries to their flashlight and now they can't get home, you know, and they're down there in the rabbit hole and they're like, oh, gosh, this is not good. Conspiracies are a dark place. I yes. don't find that totally to be the 100 percent truth. I take more of a glass half full approach. But how did you phase, you know, out of that and, and sort of see this from a, a more of a overstanding or, a, you yeah. know. Exact. So, so well said, bro. So what happened to me is that as I started realizing the Sumerian scriptures, I went back to the religion that I was raised in Hinduism. And I realized that it was talking about vibration and frequency because I was seeing evidence of vibratory awareness in these scriptures. So I started looking at all these other religions and realizing they were talking about vibration and frequency as well. And that yoga, meditation, eating well, all these things were vibratory things that we can utilize to ascend and shift our consciousness. Right. But when I was doing that, I was also looking at the bloodlines, tracking the bloodlines from the sons of God who were the fallen angels that are mentioned in the Sumerian scriptures that then got taken to almost every uh, ancient religion in the world, definitely the old Testament. And they had, they made it with the daughters of men. Right. And as they made it with the daughters of men, they had an offspring, which are the giants. And then the offspring of the giants were the Nephilim. And, and these People that pretend to they'll pretend the people that say that they're in control feel they have a direct lineage to these sons of God who are the second tier of these interdimensional beings from Nibiru, whether Nibiru was a planet or was a portal to another um, dimension or solar system. So this took me to the Illuminati bloodline, the Masonic bloodline, and how it was it was eventually hijacked by individuals that claim to have direct lineage to the sons of gods who are the fallen angels. So I, to me, it's one of two things. Either they aren't directly connected to them, but they, they had enough power and control to claim that they were, and they just played the role that they were, or they still had a direct lineage from it. And after a few generations of hybridization with humans, you know, and we, I don't know how long we have today, but maybe we can talk about the Paracas people and the elongated skulls there and how they could be one of those hybrid offsprings. But as they started hybridizing with humans over generations, they started getting smaller and smaller until they kind of looked like us. And now you have the origination of the reptilian theory of these beings, reptilian, not actual looking like reptilians, but were the offspring of the second tier of beings that lived on Nibiru that were reptilian that 
hybridized with humans and now they look like us, but they have that DNA, right? So I was tracking that hardcore and Jordan Maxwell was really laid it out for me quite a bit. And then obviously I went to a lot of different places and books. So I started realizing that these elite control the world and been doing it for thousands of years. And this whole system is this matrix that they've imposed upon us in order to cipher out energy, whether it's like physically ciphering out energy, keeping us out of the present moment or like harvesting our fear energy. They were doing something in order to make it that they maintain control over the masses. So that's what got me really into this fear place. I would say come 2006 to 2008 was probably when I was more deeply involved in that. And I would be telling people about these bloodlines, you know, I'd be hanging out at bars, like having conversations and bringing it up to tell them about what happened and how they're controlling us and how like, basically we're screwed, you know, and, and we're stuck within this matrix. So the way I shifted out of it was in 2008, I was at an open mic, my first open mic, cause I performed semi-professionally for, uh, perform spoken word. And the first one I ever performed that was an open mic in 2008. And there I met like all my people that became my soul family that like helped me grow connected with and all this stuff. And as I was there, one of the individuals that I connected with, was on stage singing my name is love right that's his song and i was actually like deep into this information and i had multiple facebook groups at this point because the portal to ascension facebook groups were created in 2006 but they weren't called portal to ascension yet they were called 2012 consciousness mind evolution and presence i had a few of them right and thousands of people in there and we're sharing a lot of stuff mainly a lot of conspiracy stuff too and then in 2008 when I was there, I was really like deep in thought about it all. And I realized that all this information I'm learning, vibration, frequency, eating well, yoga, meditation, these are all empowering topics, but why am I in so much fear? And then it came to me as I was listening to the song and it, it was the idea that all of this happened the way it was supposed to be that we go through these cycles of consciousness, this evolution, this devolution, and that we're in this planet of amnesia, where we don't remember our past lives, our multiple dimensional reality, our past incarnations, our extraterrestrial incarnations. And the way that we are able to regain those memories is by having the contrast of darkness. So the elite, all these individuals that did what they've done to us, literally did what they were supposed to do in order for us to get the experiences we needed. But this is also when I find about Gnosticism, Gnostic Christianity, pre-325 AD, pre-Constantine's manipulation. And the original text of Lucifer, right, was that God basically said, I need a volunteer to go down to earth to give him the experience of darkness. And his most trusted angel raised his hand, right? That was the original thing before it was translated to the rebel Lucifer went down to earth and did this. So if you think about that, it was almost like a willing role that these beings took in order to incarnate here, to give us the experiences we need. And there was another part of those Gnostic texts that God said, when I come, God, aliens, whatever you want to call it, right? When I come back down to earth in the new age, the new reality, new dimension, whatever, you need to willingly give me back the keys. And that to me was like 
and that's even in the regular um, Bible too, like in the more conventional one. So to me, that was like, whoa, we've lived in this cycle of duality and this separation consciousness, but it's all like this virtual reality game that when the game is over, when we've had these experiences and we've gained this contrast, the keys need to be handed back over to source and we're just going to evolve to another level of consciousness. And the only way that I can contribute towards that is not by energizing the fear because the more I energize the fear, the more energized the, the lack mentality and the control mentality, the more the universe is going to reflect that back to me. So instead I started realizing that all of this is happening the way it should happen. But even though I knew that it wasn't like I was going to completely, because some people say that's spiritual bypassing, you know, everything happens for a reason. You're just going to let it be and not take action again against it. So what I like to say is that even though you have a bigger picture, bigger understanding, you'd have, you can still take informed action in order to better humanity. But when you have that understanding, you're no longer coming from an emotional trigger of fear and reactory state. Cause when you react to people and you're emotionally triggered, you're just going to create more of that. And it never comes in a balanced way. If you're calm and balanced and you realize the bigger picture, you're able to take more action. And that was in 2008. And two weeks later, I had a dream to change the group name to portal to ascension. And then that's when I created it and been doing events ever since. I love that. And I love the the fact that <laughs> there's the dream inspiration aspect, but spiritual bypassing, I think that's something we've had multiple conversations about on this show in, you know, different ways. And I don't think we've always or ever used that phrase. And I like that you brought that up because I think a lot of people are turned off to this, what I almost call like uh, luck consciousness or luck psychology rather than lack psychology because mm -hmm. they think it's like too good to be true or they think that there's some secret that people are keeping from them and in a lot of ways you know unfortunately there are you know commercial forces that have made this type of psychology you know really materialized and and kind of you know overemphasize those parts of it rather than emphasizing the true spiritual path that we're all on yeah. and as you put it you know when your intentions are to give back you know that i think is the key that you don't get with those commercial you know law of attraction your typical type stuff it's all about how yeah. to better your own life when really i think this stuff works best when your goal is to better everyone else's lives Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree that, you know, you ha we have these tools in order to assist and better ourselves. And ultimately the reason why we're bettering ourselves is so that we can be a more unconditional member of society that gives love and is of service to everyone, you know? Right. So I, I definitely agree with that. Right on. So let's take a step back to what you mentioned in the former part of that excellent well said rant we we have we have plenty of time as much time as you'll give us so let's get into it the paracas skulls this is something that i'm well aware of and i think it's fascinating and we've had conversations on the show before about this idea that the elite are just merely playing the role of the shadow side or the dark side yeah. and that inevitably someone will fill that role but on a physical tangible level what evidence is there for these creatures because i have you know a uh anecdote about my experience with a lizard person but we'll save that for yeah. later on <laughs> okay so when it comes to the practice well firstly they could have like reptilian dna in them but they're definitely a homo species they're a hominoid right i've worked a lot with brian forrester who's like the foremost researcher of the elongated skulls 
And I just actually, it's funny we're talking about this because I literally just got done editing a video on the elongated skulls right before we got on. I was, I was tagging it on YouTube as we, as I was coming on. And so basically for a long time, they were thought to be what's it called artificially elongated. Okay. So the elongated skulls were discovered whenever, and then a lot of people were like, no, no, this is artificial cranial deformation is what it's called. And there's evidence of cranial deformation, basically the Inca people and the, and the, maybe not the Paracas, but definitely the Inca. And I'll tell you why, and maybe not the Paracas in a second. From childhood would sometimes put wooden planks on both sides of the head right there. As they were growing, you know, the head was more malleable at that point. As it would grow, they would tighten and tighten it in order to create an elongated feature. And when you go to this museum in Paracas and other museums in Lima as well, you look at the, the artificially deformed skulls, you can see cracks in them. You can even see parts where they chipped away at the brain in order to be able to like make it more elongated by like after a long time of um, doing this, they had little tools and techniques in order to assist in the deformation process. So that's what was spread out in the world when the elongated skulls were found. But what most people, I guess some people in this community know, and most people in the world don't know is that there were two types of elongated skulls. There was a naturally um, done elongated skulls. They were just naturally elongated. And then there was artificial ones. So, because there were artificial ones out there, the governments, the history books all just said that they were all fake. And if you go and see the naturally um, created ones, they don't have any s sign of trauma. Like they were squished together. They don't have any chiseling of chips and they have a couple of weird anomalies that we don't have on human brains. We have one suture line down here in our skull. They have two, one here and one here, an anomaly. They also have two holes at the back of this skull. Why? The brain was so big, the veins would go all the way out to the back to provide blood to the back of the brain, right? And then around three, maybe four years ago now, Brian Forrester decides to do a DNA study on it. And because the government in um, Peru, well, first, is, first of all, it's a Catholic government that really doesn't want a lot of this stuff out. And then secondly, they, it was so hard to get samples of the skulls, they wouldn't let you do it. And then finally, Brian got samples of the skulls, sent it out to a lab, did some DNA studies, tests. We actually did a, an event on the release of the DNA results. And he did a he did the whole entire thing in LA where they had this whole like DNA release party, if you will, in like LA at a hotel. And guess what? It's not Homo sapien. It's another human species that coexisted with us at a specific time in history. And to some, they were like, what? We coexisted with another species? Well, actually, it's already conventionally accepted that Homo sapiens, us, 200, 300,000 years of our existence, have existed with seven other Homo, homo um, species, hominoids, right? However, they're like Neanderthal, for example, Denisovan, and then a few others, but they were all considered to be much more ignorant than us or not intellectual as us, even though we have no evidence for, for that, right? So it's accepted that that was the case, but the Paracas people were never classified as one of those beings. So then we start looking at the, the Inca um, um, ruins, the um, few different tribes there, 
And we started looking at what they considered about these Paracas people. And we realized that the elongated skull beings in Peru were the royal class, the royalty. And at one point, the Inca were actually the commoners and the royalty were all the naturally elongated skull beings. But then the DNA results went a little further because the, because these elongated skull beings have red hair, right? So when you um, dig them out of, some of them are preserved well enough. And I went to, let me just say a little disclaimer real quick, actually, a detour, if you will, that Peru is one of the best archaeological sites in the entire world. Like it's almost entirely an archaeological site. So much so you can go to someone's backyard, start digging, and chances are you're going to find something. That a lot of these things are in people's backyards because it's just everywhere. There's so much that the government, it's just like, it's just like free water for the government. There's too much of it that they don't even try to regulate it. You know what I mean? They're just like whatever. The only time it gets regulated, for example, the Nazca lines in Peru. The Nazca lines only got, you know, you charge admission to go to tours and all that is because someone came from Germany and looked at them and said to the government, you know, you can make money of this, right? And they're like, what? So we went off-roading a good two hours in the desert. And then all of a sudden it's just this open area and it's a mass grave site. And they're all like, there were um, slabs of, I was it called like brick slabs, right? Concrete slabs that were all cracked open and broken open because over the last hundred years, grave robbers come there because it's not regulated. All types of stuff is stolen from there, right? Like all the elongated skulls. Uh, there's a black market for elongated skulls because it was a Paracas cemetery right next to an Inca cemetery. The Paracas cemetery is on top of the hill as the royalty, the Incas at the bottom overlooking the ocean. And then as you go, so we're going, we're walking. I have a video of it on one of my little mini documentaries on my YouTube. I'm walking over the things. I'm like, I had, at that point, I wasn't professional with my video camera. So shaking everywhere. And then you just see like skull remains and all this stuff. And there's like red hair on the ground. And then I even saw a skull with red hair on it. So they did the studies on this, the DNA results to track the migration route of where these beings were from originally. Mesopotamia. So, so what it looks like happened is that there was some sort of civilization, Mesopotamia, sons of God, Nephilim, right? I'm just going to throw that out there for a sec. And then it looks like that these beings jumped into a ship, went over the Pacific and came to the shore of Paracas and started a civilization. So now we have a couple of smoking guns here. We have the elongated skulls are natural. They're different humanoid species. They were advanced enough to have all types of technology and boats and create structures. They came from Mesopotamia, but then I lost my train of thought for a second. So as they came over here, they basically became the royalty, right? So this now changes one more conventionally accepted theory that all the indigenous tribes from the Americas came from the Alaskan land bridge. Mm, right. That was what we've been told. Right. So now we have evidence to suggest that there was actually more civilizations that were here before that, that actually came through boats or whatever advanced ways they came here into South America. And they're now tracking DNA to the Paracas people. And they think the Hopi and the Maya both have connections to the Paracas people that came from Mesopotamia. So that's, that's a, 
long version, even though that's still really a short version. <laughs> no, yeah, and I love all of the places we can go from here. Just to clarify for those who may not be familiar, where in the world is Paracas? Because it's a group of people, yeah. but it's also a location somewhere. And you said they sailed from South America across the Pacific to Paracas. Well, from Mesopotamia, which is Iraq. Right, okay. So they sailed Babylon. So they sailed from Mesopotamia to Paracas. Yes, exactly. And where is Paracas? Paracas is, so Peru, right? Peru's on the western coast of South America, and it's almost right in the middle of it. Okay. There's this little indent out. It's just a whole, it's just a village right there. So it might as well like, be South America. It's in yeah. South oh, America. It, it's, oh, it's definitely in South America. It's like right in South America. I'm picturing like Easter Island type, like far remote. So, but maybe mm. that begs the question, does Easter Island connect at all to this group that was seafaring in this ancient past? I mean, that might be a total other subject, but where does that connect at all? There could be, but Easter Island could be even older because a lot of, I guess you can call them scholars, right? Alternative history scholars. <laughs> a lot of them um, believe that Easter Island was a part of Lemuria and the statues facing the Pacific Ocean was in homage to a great civilization that used to live in the Pacific, you know, which is Mu Lemuria, which could date back tens of thousands of years. And we might just be talking seven to eight, 10,000 years for the Paracas people. So there's a few different theories because no one truly knows. Either the descendants of uh, Mu as it sank came into, you know, North America because Mount Shasta was connected to it as well. And then South South America through Easter Island to Peru and were the Paracas people. And so that's a possibility. Or the people that were in Peru thousands of years later then went there and created those statues in order to honor a great civilization that was there before or the great civilization created it themselves. No one knows because you can carbon date rock, you know? Right. Well, mm -hmm. and it is, it is interesting. And when we get into this topic, you know, I think it's important to try our best to delineate the timeline. So when we're talking Lumeria, we're talking far, far into the ancient past. And, yeah. you know, most people speculate that it, you know, preceded Atlantis. Now the Paracas yeah. people may have been a part of what we consider the Atlantis culture. Is that too far off to say, or, or is there some truth in that? So the Paracas people, so there's no evidence to suggest it at all. So we'd have to speculate, you know, mm. no one has actually speculated that they're from Atlantis. Okay. So the, because because before, <laughs> before the DNA results three years ago, people just thought they were native to Peru. Right. An indigenous tribe from there. And everybody but Brian Forrester and a handful of people that that every mainstream archaeologist wouldn't even sit at a dinner table with did not want to go against the conventional timeline of the Alaskan land bridge theory. Because that's a whole rewriting of the history books. People are being taught that right now, right. how the indigenous people came here, right? right? So no one wanted to go. And, and there was so much energy, money, and effort involved in saying that these skulls were artificially deformed, not naturally deformed. So no one speculated. This is and now here, like, because there's no answers. There's only questions. And the more we ask, the more questions we have. So let's talk about Sumer, right? So ancient Sumer, Mesopotamia, the story of the Anunnaki, the story of the fallen angels, where it comes from. They could be that 
these Anunnaki beings, there were two tiers of gods in Anibiru, right? Or, and we did an event with William Henry yesterday. Well, he was one of our speakers and he actually came up with a whole translation of the scriptures that basically says that Nibiru probably wasn't a planet, but looks like it could have been a, a brown dwarf sun that was used as a stargate to go to another solar system. So, and we supposedly live in a binary star system that that could be the second star. And it was actually a portal rather than an actual planet that they lived in. And they would come through this portal, right? So say that these beings came through the portal. It was a planet just like earth, but the planet had two species on it, Anunnaki and Ajiji. Those are the two species. Um, the Anunnaki were extremely powerful. They're the Elohim, the powerful ones, the Elohim. That's what it means. The powerful ones, right? And the Ajiji lived with them and there were giant like beings that were superhuman, but they didn't have all the same advancements as uh, them. It's just like if we lived with two, another humanoid species that didn't have certain abilities that we did, or they were telepathic and we were just who we are right now. Right. Came down to earth, mining gold, doing whatever they're doing on earth, maybe wasn't a slave race, but they're doing something. And then something occurred where there was a split. The Ajiji were left here on earth. Okay. So now we have, the biblical story of God and the fallen angels, Anunnaki being God, the Ajiji being the fallen angels left to earth. And the fallen angels were what? Who's the leader of the fallen angels? Lucifer. Well, who's the head of all these secret societies? The Lucifer, Illuminati, the, the light bearer. Illuminati literally is the light bearer, the Luciferian energy, right? Not to say it's good or bad, because as we spoke about earlier, the original text doesn't even say that Lucifer was a bad person. Yeah. So like, you make your own decisions on that, but okay. So we're going back to Samir. So they were left here. And now if this happened in ancient Samir, or if the Sumerians was speaking about something that happened thousands of years earlier, that's where we're um, curious about the timeline now, because from my research on what I've done, they speak about them, but they speak about a thing that happened in the past. And then they put in their different areas of their own town or Uruk, their own towns saying the Anunnaki founded this town, the fallen angels came here to this town. But what happens in many ancient cultures is they get all the stories and then they put it in the context of their own society. Right. So that's not enough evidence to suggest that it happened in that area. Right. Right. And I, I think it gets, you know, it's like this game of telephone and that might get misconstrued by some people saying, well, see, they're just that's evidence that they're trying to hide our history from us. But it is almost just the nature of sociology and how stories are passed down from ancestor and cultures change. They're fluid yeah. just as a river. And, you know, as a language changes names of towns get renamed and then pretty soon you know they're gonna say the anunnaki founded los angeles well actually yeah. you know there is some evidence that maybe there are some star light beings hanging yeah. around in that area it doesn't necessarily mean they founded los angeles but i can see yeah. exactly the line uh, of thinking that you're going down but let's continue in sumeria because i know you said it's fresh yeah. on your mind i hope i didn't derail you too much but i know you're no. you're going through this let's let's keep on the the history here all right so it's it's interesting because so now let's think about what i'm thinking about in regards to the timeline because the paracas people came from mesopotamia and they were definitely some sort of hybrid being so maybe the bloodline of these anunnaki even if they're further back 
actually went down to Sumer because we also have the pharaohs pre-dynastic Egypt and before that probably had some sort of connection to these beings and the original pharaohs that were elongated skulls as well in Egypt. So maybe it wasn't that far back, or if it was that far back, they were able to maintain their bloodline for a long, long time, maybe all the way up to the creation of Mesopotamia. Because many civilizations after Mesopotamia had all this information that they came up with, mathematics, science, astronomy, and they all gave credit to the person that found it. But the Sumerians and the Mesopotamians before and the Akkadians that came after and before that came after and before them because the Akkadians took over and the Sumerians got power again, all said that their information that they got were from star beams, that they were taught everything from star beams. They didn't give it credit to anybody. We see civilization starting in Mesopotamia over just from nothing. All of a sudden, it just flourishing of civilization. So now we have the possibility that this ET story maybe happened more recent, or it happened in the past, and then beings came thousands of years later to kickstart civilization, right? So, but besides all of that, the Paracas people were definitely more recent because we can carbon date their skulls. So it looks like that what could have happened is that the sons of God has some sort of bloodline connected to Mesopotamia, the fallen angels, the second tier of gods, the Ajiji, where they name in the Sumerian text, that came down to earth and started mating with the daughters of men and then started creating hybrid offspring. Over generations and generations, these offspring started looking different. One of the versions of them were probably these elongated skull beings that literally left Mesopotamia in whatever way they left, went to the other side of the world, and founded a civilization in Peru. Right. And where does the, you know, because it's very apt to point out that, you know, what we were saying before about the Sumerians, you know, having names of places and saying Anunnaki founded this, because when we're looking at this, the timeline keeps getting pushed back. I mean, places like Globeke Tepe, you know, definitely contributed to that. What, it's dated like some 12,000 years yeah. beyond what we have records of. But yeah, I'm wondering, you know, where do, where does the flood fit into this? Because it seems like there's evidence on certain structures like the pyramid that the flood you know, can be seen, you know, with the Sphinx, where there's certain water effects yeah. that have gone on with the sandstone. And I wonder if, because we hear in the in the Bible from people who are studying the biblical scripture that, oh, well, God sent the flood to destroy all the Nephilim and to kill them all. Yes. And it seems like they, they were just seafaring already and took advantage of the high tide and sailed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you, let's let's go back to the Bible because the Bible says the Nephilim were here in those days before the flood and after as well. Mm, wow. Right. And I think that part gets forgotten. <laughs> right. And it says about it was wiping humanity out, not the Nephilim. Okay. But so, but no, but it has been translated as from some people as a wiping out of the Nephilim. But it seems like it was a reset of humanity. But maybe it was a reset of a version of humanity that wasn't working out. That's what's said about it all. But I don't even think it was a punishment per se. Because we have these cycles of time, these 26,000 year cycles. And I actually did a presentation, it's on my YouTube, and I'm doing a full version, paid version in a couple of weeks called Galactic Origins, Dimensions, and Black Holes. And within that, I'm showing the galactic weather, what happens when a solar system goes to certain areas, all 
peer-reviewed science and 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 also esoterics combined and in there i show an article from physics.org right that says the earth is adhering to some sort of cosmic pattern that is attracting cataclysms every thirteen thousand years what does that mean wait adhering to some sort of pattern in the way it's going around a galaxy that is attracting not colliding with the cataclysm we're attracting a cataclysm. Mm. Now we get into karmic cycles, matrix and all this stuff. And almost like we've been put in the, into this certain construct that is designed in a way in order to ensure we have these resets so that we can have the experiences that we signed up for. Right. Taking us back to what you were saying that ultimately kind of took you out of that. What, what could have been a dark place is ultimately the realization that this is all meant to happen the way it's happening now, yeah. when you talk about like evolution and devolution, I often imagine it like a spiral. Like you can either spiral upwards mm. or spiral downwards. Either way, you're going to be going in that cycle and the forces of the universe, maybe they're the 12 signs of the Zodiac, are going to ping you every time you cycle past them with a certain energy that then affects your trajectory. You know, it's like a challenge or a test. You either take it as a positive and you keep going up or it affects you in a negative and you start going back down. It kind of mm -hmm. feels like on a cosmic level, we're facing these maybe cataclysmic uh, events, whether it's through solar flares or asteroid belts or whatever, almost mm -hmm. to test us as a civilization. Cause we're not, you know, we haven't fallen victim to any cataclysm yet. We're still here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's almost exactly the way I explain it actually, that we're either fractalizing upwards or, or downwards. And that's why like our thoughts, our thoughts and our reality perpetuates more of what we put out there. So if you're putting out a certain frequency, you're going to fractalize towards that or the opposite way. And even when it comes to ascension and moving into a higher octave of existence, maybe call it the fifth dimension, right? Basically we're, we're, we're spiraling into the, we're at the ends of hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, we're at the ends of the, of the wormhole. Let's say this etheric wormhole. I'm just making up. It would take lives in order to get the same experiences. Very little stimuli. You don't even leave your village. And then as we time progressed, consciousness evolved. Time has not sped up. Time is the same. We're still the same distance from the sun, but our consciousness has evolved. Our ability to process multiple stimuli has evolved. The illusion is that time is going faster. So as that's happening, we're going closer and closer to the center of the, the black hole. Now we're right at the center. And it's almost like if you don't learn the lesson, you get smacked in the face three times a day. Right. And then ultimately we get sucked into the singularity and we emerge into another experience. You know, so that's kind of where I feel we are right now is that we're at that point, that tipping point to just the end of the game, the end of this chapter and the beginning of a new one. And it's not actually like good or bad. We just live in this world of good or bad. So we consider a more empowered experience, a good one, because we live in duality. But what is God? What is source? Source is singularity. It doesn't have a concept of that source unconditionally loves the darkness as much as it likes the light. Something that I came up with a quote, like that I say now is the most unconditional thing the light ever did was allow the darkness to live within it, you know? And that's pretty much what's going on. It's just like this balance of them um, good and bad and all this stuff, because I feel that source creation, whatever the original thought was, 
I want to experience myself infinitely in all ways. And so many realities have been like, we're here to experience so many realities and dimensions and ETs. Cause I work with all these experiencers, whistleblowers, everything all come from these no, no free world realities, free will realities. So what's the best way to get the most random experience of, of, of existence is to be in a free world mentality, free will reality. So free will really doesn't exist. The only thing is we don't remember our multidimensional selves. So we have the illusion that we live within this free world reality because we don't know what's going to happen next. But in the grand scheme of it all, every parallel reality, everything that could ever happen has happened because time isn't, doesn't really exist. So it's a beautiful construct of linearity in order to give us the illusion that we're moving towards something when ultimately when you go higher and higher in dimension, time becomes secular, time becomes fluid, time becomes non-existent. And the non-existence is what we live within. Right. So it's a paradox. Right. I love it. I want to get back to maybe the more tangible because that's food for thought that I recommend people hit the reverse button on and listen to what you just said a couple times because that's the medicine that we all need. But <laughs> getting back to the more tangible things, when it comes to aliens in our ancient past, we have stories, we have descriptions of beings that certainly sound otherworldly. We even have descriptions of star systems that are totally unobservable, at least at that time in history, right? We have a group of people in Africa called the Dogon people who talk about mm -hmm. the Sirius, Sirius constellation before yeah. we had the telescope to even observe it in, you know, at least the, yeah. you know, the binary version of it, right? There's two, there's one you can kind of make out. It's very, it, it's a, it's a star that I think even some of the pyramids are aligned to, but you know, what is there? as far as evidence goes for alien or, or being, you know, kind of these otherworldly beings, like in the sense of from another space in this physical space. Well, when you look at ancient civilizations, most of them, let's say pre-flood civilizations, if you will, even, or that have stories of pre-flood, right? Because then there's, there's certain religions that don't have, you know, they're more new and they think that everything started after the flood. You know, it looks like that there could have been two floods, one around 6,000 years ago, and that could have been Noah's flood or the 13,000 year ago one was a flood that could be Noah's one. But if you look at Christianity and um, Judaism, they almost have a linear view of reality from the flood onwards. And so they don't even realize that we could have been more advanced in the past. But if you go back to a lot of ancient cultures that, you know, that speak of time secularly, right. In a cycle, those are the ones that talk about advancements. And then, you know, then us losing these advancements. Uh, a lot of them are indigenous tribes of the Americas have some sort of really ancient connection, India for sure, Hinduism and the Vedic awareness, right? Some ancient um, Chinese and um, Japanese um, folklore as well talks about it, and they have secular calendars. Those are the ones where if you look at their the description of the gods that they're talking about, first of all, they're multiple gods, right? In monotheism, it's like one god, one source. It's almost like, it's almost like there were multiple gods or aliens one of them was selected and that one of them convinced the people that that was source. And I'm the unity. I am the oneness. I am the Yahweh. But if you even look at the old Testament, Yahweh literally said, do not worship any other God, but me. And that was the beginning of monotheism, right? Another tangent here, Israel, right? 
Isis Ra'amen Elohim. Israel. Isis Ra'amen Elohim. Three gods. Isis, Egyptian god. Ra'amen, Egyptian god. Elohim, the god of Saturn. Right? Israel. Even the freaking name is based on three different gods. Right. Right? And that created Yahweh. Yahweh was the, the Elohim God, the last one. So in when the slaves were in Egypt, they weren't slaves, by the way, but when they were in Egypt, they worshipped Isis because Isis was uh, bene- benevolent to the, the indentured servants. That's what they were. So they worshipped Isis because they had no God. And then when they were in the desert and they were dying because it took them 40 years to cross like a few hundred miles. Why did it take them 40 years? I mean, that's another tangent. I don't want to go on a tangent within a tangent though. That would make me go crazy. (laughs) But like, why did it take them 40 years? Well, they worshiped who? The sun God, because the sun was literally killing them. Amen. When they arrived to the promised land and they decided to kill all the people in Jericho, the who was there? The Phoenician Canaanites. Who did the Phoenician Canaanites worship? Elohim. They picked up every god along their way, and they just chose the last one to be their god, Yahweh. You know, so so even that story is multiple gods. So there were definitely in many of these ancient cultures, even the monotheistic ones, we can say came from polytheistic religions. And then if you look at the stories about these beings, they're talking about them being sky people right? The sky people, the powerful ones, their names are even named after certain celestial objects. And then of course you have certain tribes like the Dogon and many others that talk about the star systems they come from. Egypt is one of the biggest smoking guns in the world that we haven't even, even the alternative people haven't even scratched the depth of how incredible the Egyptian culture was. And they even talk about the different beings and where they came from. Sirius, aligned with Orion's belt, right? The Mayan pyramids um, in different areas aligned with Orion's belt. The distance from Uxmal, because right now I'm in the Mayan Peninsula in Yucatan, so it's not even like 30 minutes from me, these places. The distance between Uxmal and Kaaba, which is two ancient sites down here, is the road is named after, it's called the Milky Way Galaxy. I forget the name in Maya, but it's called, it's basically called the Milky Way Galaxy. And the whole road and the two sites are structured as if the road was the Milky Way Galaxy. And then one of them is Orion's Belt and the other one's a different star system. And the road was a mirror reflection of the connection of those two areas. And I'll just throw one more thing out there because I'm just like throwing it all out, I guess. Keep it going. Is that, is that um, Cygnus star system a lot of ancient cultures speak about Cygnus being a place where souls go to get reincarnated into other lives, including other planets. And if you look at the Milky Way galaxy, there's this split open or like a, a separation of the Milky Way galaxy there, which could actually have something to do with the origin stories rather than like we die, we go to this realm and we're getting recycled and reincarnated and we come back down again. It could actually happen, have something to do with the, the seeding of humanity and where many souls event originally actually incarnated from, which gets into like, you know, information on Dolores Cannon and the fact that we could probably be not only seeded from extraterrestrials, but also we are the souls of extraterrestrials experiencing ourselves simultaneously on earth while we're actually living lives in other areas. Wow. Like the Monad idea. We were just talking about that last night on a uh, roundtable podcast I was a part of. But that's fascinating when you talk about Cygnus possibly being like this gateway 
on the other side or maybe the Milky Way being having a gateway to Cygnus, it kind of conjures up in my mind this thing I've heard about us being, you know, in this like prison planet scenario. What if Mm -hmm. the Milky Way galaxy, whatever it is, is surrounding us in this sort of incubator period where, you know, school Earth isn't quite ready to take on the same role that maybe Cygnus or Sirius has it's yeah. it's it's doing what it's doing for us here in the now kind of what we were talking about earlier but i want to you know keep on the the tangible side of things you mentioned the mahabharata and the bhagavad gita being a big part of your early experience of some of these subjects yeah. people often reference the vimanas and a big talking point on our show in the past few months have been stone structures, stone monuments. What's the connection between Vimanas and, you know, these extraterrestrial beings or, you know, and then also these structures that seem to resemble the Vimanas that are all over yeah. the place? That's so amazing, right? Those right. structures that literally like, so there are pyramids all over the world, not just in Egypt, not just in Maya. There's pyramids in China. And you can actually find them on Google Earth. And they've actually found blonde-haired white people in the pyramids and have gone above and beyond to make sure no one finds out anything about them because it just, it, it to me, it doesn't really threaten the fact that they could be native to the area. It just adds to the human experience, you know. But then in India, there's pyramids all over as well, and a lot of them look like Vimanas, like the images of Vimanas. It's almost like the Tower of Babel and how the Tower of Babel was almost created in a way in order to symbolize what they saw the gods doing, right? So I feel that, well, if you look at some of the imagery in the ancient scriptures, the Mahabharata, Bhagavad Gita, and others, these um, these structures that look like those pyramids are floating in the air with wings on either side going like this, like, and there's people looking at it and pointing at it. Some of the imagery actually shows lightning bolts coming out of the Vimbanas. Right, like some sort of some sort of craft that was able to actually create battle scenes and have actually war with other people or something like that, and we even see this in the in the Mahabharata. We see carriages, golden carriages with light all around them, throwing lightning bolts at each other. That was speculated to be possibly craft. So I feel that the Mahabharata, and I'm still because I'm doing actually it too. What happens is when I want to know more about something, I just do a conference on it and invite all the best people. <laughs> So I'm doing a two-day conference in June, June 23rd and 24th, called the Indus Valley Civilization in Ancient India Conference. I have around 15 speakers online, some of the most amazing researchers ever on this on these topics. And we're going to do one presentation. It's going to be tracking the timeline based on astrological alignments for when the Mahabharata happened and another one's for the Ramayana. So to kind of look at it, because I've been curious, when did the Mahabharata happen? Because to me, it almost looks like some sort of war that could have taken place after Atlantis fell, because at the end of every age, Yuga cycle, Bronze Age, Silver Age, Dark Age, Golden Age, and the lower ages, the lower three ages, if you look at the timeline that is provided in Indian texts of when these dates happen, there's almost like a huge war that occurred on the planet at those times. So could this be something that happened after Atlantis fell. Because if you look at the Mahabharata even closely, it was two brothers. It was a brotherhood, right? And the brothers went against each other. And when I first started doing Atlantis research, going deep into it, I started hearing about the white brotherhood of Atlantis. And what happened was there was two warring factions in Atlantis. There was the red brotherhood and the blue brotherhood, right? The beginning of duality, fire and water, 
right? The American flag, the English flag, red and blue everywhere, bloods and crips everywhere. It's literally everywhere, right? And it's this fire water it came from the, the trauma of Atlantis. And then if you look at the Mahabharata text, it's almost a reflection of that, of these two brotherhoods that came from this one brotherhood that was an advanced one that was basically taking care of the planet. And then there was this war that occurred between them. And then they were fighting each other with very advanced equipment. There's even, I don't think it's in the, it might be in the Mahabharata because the Mahabharata is a huge epic, but there's even a time in one of the ancient Indian scriptures where the gods decided to have a race from earth to Pluto and back. Okay. And so I was raised watching those eighties. Uh, even though this was like in the early nineties, I was watching those like eighties and seventies Indian shows that were super cheesy on Rama and Krishna doing all types of stuff and going on exploits and taking down demons. It was almost like power Rangers for Indian, Indian scriptures. Okay. So it was like that. That's actually a really good analogy there. And, um, in one of them, dude, they they literally had like, you know, like 70 style studio race in these golden carriages from earth, all the gods racing to Pluto and back. And that's straight from the scriptures, you know? So, so I'm speculating there's much more evidence to, of course, that this definitely has some sort of extraterrestrial connection. Absolutely. Yeah. I undoubtedly, and yeah, it does sound like power Rangers. I I've seen some like Mormon fiction that looks similar where they're just like, Oh yeah. You know, flying through space with Jesus. And it's, it's really so funny. entertaining, but I would, I would pass up my Catholic upbringing for a Hindu upbringing. Cause it definitely sounds like you guys have a lot more to work with the, uh, you know, right. Well, it's interesting because only if you woke up, would it actually benefit you? Because most of the Indian people aren't awake. There are a few and they're a hundred percent blind faith. You know, don't even really think twice about what they're learning and listening to. I woke up, moved away from religion. I became like an atheist Hindu. I was doing the rites and rituals, but I didn't believe it all. And only because I could get to a point of non-reaction and actual research, did I start finding things out. Only through quantum physics. Quantum physics is what brought me back to the Hindu scriptures. Most, if you're a linear Indian scientist or mathematician, those are two separate worlds, but you believe in both of them. You don't merge them together. Mm. Or you're just like an Indian person that's just completely following it blindly. And so what happened is we've been through these cycles of time, 26,000 years. We've probably been advanced and devolved multiple times. Every age has a theme to it. When we go lower and lower in ages, when we go to the dark age, what occurs is that everything becomes ritualistic. Hinduism has been around for a long time. It used to be Vedic awareness. And before that, it was passed down verbally, right? Pre-Indus Valley civilization. As it was being passed down, we started falling in ages. We went from the Bronze Age, we went from the Silver Age to the Bronze Age to the Dark Ages, which started in 700 BC, the Kali Yuga. When we started going lower and lower in consciousness, these concepts, these spiritual concepts, meditation and connecting to God, chakra system, all this stuff became very ritualistic until eventually we got to a point where it became contractual. If I do this and this and this, God will give me this. If I fast on this day, and this is with all religions in the world, if Christianity lasted this long, was that long, it would have gone through the same cycles from some sort of advanced awareness to not, right? And... So it's just Hinduism happens to be one of the only 
still were um, still utilize religions that dates back this many thousands of years longer than almost everyone in the world so we can track the devolution of consciousness through hinduism because it goes back at least six ten thousand years probably and some say way longer but i'm just going based on conventional timelines and archaeology here so as they devolved all these spiritual things that they did became a contract with God. And now we go to this world of blind faith where people like my family members will be like, Oh, I need to fast on this day every year because if I fast on this day, God will know that he needs to take care of my son. When my son goes to college, that's where it's at now, you know? Right. And so you when see I that, woke yeah. up to it and I started looking at the bigger picture and how ancient it goes, I started tracking the fact that it got to that point, but it wasn't at that point originally. Yeah. I was going to say, you see that ritualism all over the world in all these different cultures. <clears throat> and it's absolutely yeah. fascinating to track it in a culture as ancient as the Hindu culture. So, wow. I, I'm very grateful that you shared that with us. Cause that is, that wasn't really what I was expecting by bringing that up, but I, I definitely, yeah. I'm not going to say I was completely aware that a lot of that was new to me, but I've had sort of the gist of that and suspected something along those lines, which leads me to ask you, where do you see us going in this next stage? You know, we talk about being in the yeah. age of Aquarius. I don't know if we're in a new cycle altogether. It might not be quite there yet, but how do you see, you know, not just Hindu culture, but the world evolving into this new Aquarian age? Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer that in a second. I just want to finish the thought on the India thing. Cause you just said something that might be remember something. So, you know, I've been awake, if you will, since 2001, meaning I was making friends that were conscious. Right. And all these friends were like really holding the Hindu culture into such high regard. You, you might know this meditation, yoga events, sound healing with Tibetan bowls and Indian stuff. Right. They like really, really give a lot of reverence to the ancient Indian culture. And it's a good thing because a lot of beauty comes from there, but a lot of them thought that all Indians were kind of like that and all spiritual because they were Hindu. So people, my, some of my friends would go to India expecting everyone to be spiritual and we'll try to have like, like this, like new age kind of personality with everyone. Like, Oh, how are you? Like, yes. You know what I mean? And <laughs> more times than not, they were rudely awakened from the fact that India is just a bunch of regular people. And for example, almost every driver in India, especially every taxi driver has a deity drop from their windshield. Shiva, Ganesh, remove all obstacles. So I know a handful of people that would get in a taxi and see that and automatically believe you're one of us, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but they're just doing it because Ganesh removes obstacles. Right. Right. They don't know anything. First of all, I think Ganesh, that was actually a mask and, and, and he was actually some sort of astronaut because if you look at the original sculptures of Ganesh, he has this pack around him and his trunk connects to the pack. It almost looks like it's some sort of oxygen mask, mm. you know? Yeah, that so, is definitely. Yeah. I, I, I had thoughts of, of that, but on the point of, you know, keeping little things in your car, Catholics do it too with like St. Anthony. And I think whoever yeah. the, the one, the saint for like safe travel is my grandmother one time hit a, a pothole and her St. Anthony card fell from the visor and hit the floor. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, definitely not 
totally uh, unique there, but that's awesome, man. I definitely, yeah. I've had some friends who have gone to India and come back, and I definitely got a sense of that. Like, it wasn't what they had hoped it would be, but not it, all that, that it was bad, though, right? Right, right. It's just, it's just everybody's not meditative and aware. They're just regular people. It's, it's like saying that because you're a police officer, you probably are in the most highest integrity because you're in that profession. <laughs> but it's just a reflection of society. They just happen to choose that profession. Right. Just like Indian people, they're just a reflection of the world and all the insecurities that come along with it. They just happen to be Hindu. Right. You know? So, so where are we heading in this <laughs> new age? <laughs> right. So let's get to that other question now. Where do I see us going? So definitely we're shifting a lot of things. As I said earlier, that fractal singularity thing where we're basically at the singularity now having the opportunity to transcend a lot of traumas, present life traumas, past life traumas, a lot of lessons are being repeated for us to basically confront. And if we don't, they just keep smacking us in the face until we do. So that is occurring because we have shifted out of this age in 1700 AD. We shifted out of the Kali Yuga into the 200 year transitory phase between the Kali Yuga and the Dwarpa Yuga, which is the next age. The theme of the Kali Yuga is the theme of hierarchy, which means you have a hierarchical thing society. The authority, meaning you give up your power to authority, and delusion, where we consider the complete opposite to be better for us, right? And then the theme of the Dwarpa Yuga is the age of sovereignty and the age of energy and the age of the ideological societies, those are the three ages. So what that means is what happened after 1700? Well, electricity, light bulb, energy. And then what happened in 1900? Literally two to three years after full emergence into this new age, quantum physics, Max Planck, Einstein, Tesla, where we went from thinking that math and science is just its own linear aspect since Pythagoras, because in Pythagoras, he believed everything was conscious and energy and was God and music was God and all this stuff, very beautiful stuff. And then there was this kind of pushback against that because the church had created so much, um, such a power control over the world that Galileo and Kepler and all those individuals wanted to remove spirituality from mathematics. And then all of a sudden when we leave, the, the transitory phase in 1900, we start getting people that not are dealing with uh, aren't dealing with Newtonian physics anymore. We're now dealing with subatomic physics, quantum physics, and these individuals that are dealing with subatomic physics are spiritual. Albert Einstein, consciousness; Max Planck, consciousness; Tesla. He probably even channeled DTS at this point. You know what I mean? So it's like. And, and then we start realizing not only are we utilizing energy to create lights and all this stuff, we are energy. We are vibration exactly in alignment with thousands of years old texts talking about this age. And then as we do that, we're at the beginning phases. By the time we end this age in a few hundred years, we'll be the masters of our energy bodies. What happens at the beginning of this phase is that we are not only do we realize we're energy, but we also the age of individual sovereignty happened. What had occurred from 700 till now complete loss of sovereignty. There was like, how like sometimes I just trip out at the fact that like people like Alexander the great could convince entire nations to walk, to walk over the earth to conquer people for him. 
you if you get, took away planes and things from my military, most of them will quit. <laughs> like because there's this individual mentality, you only t- can take it so far. So we're at the beginning of individuality. As we're learning how to be sovereign beings, we're having a little bit of a kickback because we're like conflicted about it. And sometimes the individuality doesn't take notice of others. So at the end of this age, we master how to be these sovereign beings. The last thing is the age of ideological societies. So as predicted thousands of years ago, we're going to have some sort of democratic world towards the end of the Kali Yuga. But And if you look at 700 BC, it was literally the beginning times of democracy, right? So what happens with um, the end of the the dark age is that democracy stops working. And the reason why is that people become so ideologically separate that every single um, ruler cancels the other ruler and progress stops. And we're seeing that right now, like four to eight years, go to the next person's office, cancels all the stuff the other person did and tries to reverse it all and just talks crap on them when they're in power and then vice versa. So democracy stops working. So what happens is ideological societies start popping up where society starts crumbling, systems stop working, and then people start joining societies based on their ideology. So what we might see in the next 100, 200 years is smaller communities that are more sustainable because we are damaging the planet but not being sustainable and these communities will probably be based more on ideology. And now you get an esoteric information of a splitting of worlds, right? Where eventually we might just be at two different vibrations and no longer coexist on this planet if we continue down this route. But what really needs to happen is we need to continue doing the inner work and just like getting to a place of acceptance, not tolerance, because tolerance is I am judging you, but I accept you. I like basically, that's what tolerance is. We need to get to unconditional acceptance and realizing we have way more in common with each other than we have that are separate. One of the biggest things we have in common with each other is we all exist on this planet, rotating around the same sun in a very vast universe that probably has all types of life. Why can't we even get along with each other? Right. Right. So just to add one more thing to that, jumping all over the place because there's so many layers here. I feel that earth is a test of galactic racism galactic speciesism, that many planets, many star systems don't have as many species on their planets. Many of these star systems and beings have donated DNA to Earth. There's people that, beings that have donated DNA that ended up being cockroaches, being ants, being lizards, being humans, all types of stuff. They've donated the DNA. Earth is a galactic library. It's like the Library of Alexander for the universe, and it's in our DNA. So what is we're trying to do is get to a level of frequency that we're able to live in harmony with all animals on the planet. And that's the ultimate goal, I feel, is how we can live in harmony, not with just the earth, but every single being that lives on it, animals and beyond. Beautiful and well said at that. I think, I think that's exactly what we're seeing, especially with this podcasting community that I'm a part of. You're seeing people finding their tribe. And much like you did very early on, and it evolved into what you're doing now, this portal to ascension. And I definitely want to hear more about that. But before we get into that, you know, I think there's many of us who don't have the, we'll say, luxury that I had where I quit my job and took this risk to, you know, get out of the system and do something, let's say, independent. 
for myself, right? I think a lot of those people may be scared that they're going to get left behind and get stuck in that, you know, other, the wrong side of those two worlds that mm-hmm. might be coming, the side that might be like in the form of smart cities and technocratic dictators mm-hmm. or who knows what, you know, I don't want to speculate on how bad it could be. But for those of us who might not be, you know, on the path to sovereignty or energy healing themselves, how do we, you know, make those steps towards, you know, living for yourself in this new individuated world that's becoming very ideological. One thing I've heard a lot from people over the years I've been doing this is how do I live my life purpose? Right. And that's in alignment with them trying to do it full time. Right. Um, Like I want to be an energy healer. I want to help with the shift in consciousness. I used to hear it a lot more than I hear it now. I feel more and more people are accepting that just being on earth and being present and doing the inner work can assist, but it used to be really prevalent. I would go to channeling events, channeling events with Bashar, for example, and I'm trying to find out like about what ET race went to this planet and other people are just like, what's my life purpose? You know what I mean? And so I, was, I, I realized that a lot of people feel lost and they're waiting for it. And even the other day, like actually day before yesterday, someone's like, I'm just waiting to find my life purpose. And pr- part of it is like, when you do the inner work, when you're present with yourself and you're able to emanate love in these situations that you consider dark, which might be working for a job that literally is not benefiting humanity, right? When you're able to be present with that, you are doing a benefit to society because what really needs to happen is we need to collectively be able to be present in the moment. The word ascension is paradoxical. People used to say to me, and it's as time progressed, less and less people say it, the more I own what I'm doing. But some people used to say like, hated that I use the word ascension. I would get hate emails sometimes because they would be like, that's escapism. You're just trying to like move away from something and ascend. I'm not leaving this planet or whatever. Right. And And then I would say, well, no, that's interesting because the word ascension implies that we're moving towards something, but the only way you can have an ascended reality is by embracing your present moment. If you're always worried about how am I going to make something better in the future, that's the if-then statement. If I do this, then this will be okay. If you're always doing that and sending it out to the universe, the universe being the the universe's big Xerox machine where it just reflects that back, all you're going to get is more and more of that experience of waiting for something to happen. So the only way we can live in an ascended world, in a harmonious world where we have the re-education of humanity, telling people our true history, telling people how spiritually empowered they are, showing people all the abilities they have with their bodies and chakra systems and all that, is by fully embracing why you're here right now and getting to that state of not having lack, but having all you need. The only way to do that is by doing the inner work, release your traumas, go to therapy, plant medicine works for some people, working out triggers, having a deep connections, connecting with yourself, connecting with others, forming bonds and relationships. Those are all the steps and just some of them actually that will lead us towards being able to be the caretakers of this planet. Cause it's not about like, I have anxiety about not doing what I should do. I have anxiety about not doing what I should do. Oh, I'm finally doing what I can do. Oh, I can make money for it. I'm just an energy healer now. Well, where's the inner work? Where's the connection? Where's the bond with others and relationships that doesn't even, it's not even included in that equation. You know, like some people probably do it and it's a part of it, but ultimately that's what we really need to do is to come together and connect with each other and have love, but the love, and this is coming from someone that's doing this work actively myself right now is 
the love for self, you know, like a lot of people love themselves for what they do. So the reason why many people want to do what they love, like Reiki healing or whatever is because they will love themselves more now that they're able to do that. How do you love yourself for not what you do, not what your life mission is. So many people love themselves because their mission is consciousness. Well, you just signed up to have this mission this time. Wouldn't you want to love yourself, whether that wasn't your mission or not? So loving yourself for not what you do, but for simply for the fact that you exist. That is the goal. Unconditional love is loving yourself for just existing. And that is something I'm not even at, you know what I'm saying? So like, I just got, I just separated from my ex-wife like three months ago. So I'm like in it right now of like reflection of myself and love for myself and all these things, but I'm moving towards it. You know, like it's just about really figuring out who you are without the external reality or relying on someone else to give you that reflection that you're worthy. And a lot of times when we become these healers and things, we rely on the feedback and others to show that we have, we're worthy of doing what we're doing. So the goal is really to just accept ourselves no matter what. And that includes if you're working at an oil rig, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I have to remind myself that with this podcast, you know, I can't rely on what other people think. If I get a, a comment that says they don't like a certain aspect of the show, that doesn't mean I should just drop that aspect of the show then and there, you know, it might yeah. give me a good eye into how I can improve, but I definitely can't, can't let my, or I said it best the other day, at least my friend Juan thought so you can't cater to your haters, right? That's, that's, that's ultimately maybe one side of it, but, yeah. but any, most people come from triggers, you know, mm -hmm. they, re most people react, including me sometimes, a lot of times maybe, but so when they see something that goes against their belief system, or they think that they might know more, they might react to it, send you that email and you don't even really know where it's coming from, you know? So a lot of times people have reacted to me and sent me really hateful emails. And then I just, I used to take time to email people back and explain it nine times out of 10, I would get an apology because there's just lack perspective. Right. And I think people are, are more inclined to, to respond kindly when you see that you took the time to respond to them in the first place. Cause a lot of them, yeah. they're just doing drive-bys, you know, they're mad at their exactly. life. So every time they feel that kind of anger, they just take it out and, and move on and onto the yeah. next victim, you know, and they're not going to think about it probably the next day that they wrote a mean right, comment, right. you know, and if you're triggered and you respond in a triggered way, it's just going to give more triggers. Right. And then it just becomes that fractal that you talked about in the wrong direction. Exactly. Yeah. And I definitely, I mean, I see that in traffic where if one like bad driver gets me upset, then another bad driver is soon to come. So yeah, 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 yeah. it's definitely, you know, that's a little bit mundane compared to where we could go with this conversation. I, I talk about traffic all too much for some reason. So anyways, Neil, here we are, brother. And <laughs> you have, you have quite the organization going. Tell us more about Portal to Ascension, how would you describe it to someone who's completely new to the, the subject? Yeah, so I'll go back to 2008 when I shifted my perspective and I changed the group, right? So I had thousands of people in my groups. I had uh, different chapters for different countries even, and then the fan page. And so in 2009, 
I had this thought of why don't I just start doing some local events? So I did a couple of local events, like the hypno creativity was one of them where my friend did hypnosis with binaural beats that helped people unlock the creative blocks. Right. I was doing some sound healing events. 2010, I met my friend, uh, Mark Peebler, who goes by Dr. Dream. And he does, he does Tibetan bowls and right frequency machines where he hooks people up to right frequency machines, puts in a certain frequency and they all sit in a circle and we play all these instruments. I went to one of his events and I've been experimenting with portal extension events. And he was like, Hey, why don't you come on tour with me? And why don't we go on tour? Like he was about to start this too. Like he was just in the beginning phases. Why don't we go on tour up the coast from um, San Diego to Victoria Island, Vancouver and do these events. And I was working as a web designer at that time for real estate companies. And, um, wasn't really having a good time at it. I kept, I've sabotaged myself so many times to get fired just because I just didn't want to do that work, you know? And so I was like, one day I called him from work, all pissed off about what was happening there. And I just don't want to be there. And he, then he said, let's do this. And I was like, yes. And so I, one of the many a handful of times, let's say that I quit everything to do full-time consciousness was this moment. And I moved in with him into his place. We spent a week booking some locations. We hit the road. We only had like four or five events booked, but we were going on a six week tour and we ended up doing an event every other day in a different city from San Diego all the way to Vancouver and then back down again. And so we ended up doing like 16 to 24 or something like that events. <clears throat> and those are the, the trial runs of portal to Ascension. I was producing it all. When we went to Vancouver, I had a few people there that I knew from, you know, just um, spiritual people. I met at conferences that were speakers. One was Miriam, Miriam Delicado, who is like, does the Hopi prophecy has a website called the blue star prophecy. And she was like a spokesperson for the Hopi and their prophecy. And then Alfred Weber, he was another one. And then Brad Johnson, who channeled a being from Sirius that had been following for two years. So I hit them all up and I was like, Hey, um, I'm coming to Vancouver doing this tour. What if I rented out the unity church there? Do you guys want to, would you come to my conference? And they said, yes. So I did it, did a little mini conference there. And that was like the largest scale event. So this is 2010, beginning of 2010. Then uh, the events continued at four tours, the same type of tour. The first two were with Dr. Dream. The second one was Brad Johnson only of an extraterrestrial channeling tour only. And then the fourth one was sound healing tour where I was just doing sound healing with my, with my friends that I was with. So we kept hitting up the same venues, expanding a bit, doing hundreds of events in like just a couple of years. And that was kind of me getting in front of everything, trying to figure out how am I going to do these events and, you know, see if I can make money from it. At that point, I was only had enough money to go from city to city. If I didn't get paid, enough from one city, I wouldn't be able to go to the next city. And that happened a few times where I got stranded because I had no funds. I would stay at people's houses. The fourth tour I got with my uh, ex-wife and she was like, what the, what the heck is this? This is like missionary work. I didn't sign up for this. You know, <laughs> She literally was like, I didn't sign up for missionary work. And so then I had all these experiences, but then 2010, 2011, I'd already made a lot of connections. I had thousands of people in my groups. So I started doing small all day ancient alien conferences with people that are on ancient aliens right now. Like Laura Eisenhower, I don't know if you know her, but she came out in 2011 and I did her first 15 events back to in LA. Now she's the, she's a descendant of president Eisenhower. Yeah, right? the, great, the great granddaughter of president Eisenhower. So her first 15 events were portal to Ascension events in LA. At a, at a, at a conscious art gallery. 
And so I was doing those kind of events with her. I had like Mike Barra, Richard Hoagland, like Mars Anomaly people, types of other individuals. And I was doing these like all the ancient alien conferences and then sound healings in between. So now jump forward to 2012, that's kind of what I was doing for a little while. And 2012, I decided for December 21st, 2012, to do an event a month before called the Cosmic Reunion 2012. And I was going to pull on all these people that I'd made connections with, all these speakers I met at conferences, fly them in from all over the world. Daryl Anka, Chanel Bashar was one of my headliners at one of them. <clears throat> and I did the event. I did very well. And then I decided to do another one in March of 2013 called Cosmic Reunion Fourth Density. That one didn't do so well, but I still did it. So those two events were my milestone events of us going from these random events or me to doing bigger events from 2012 to 2015. I quit portal dissension around three times, but through synchronicity, I was brought back to it. And through the fact that I just couldn't do any, any other job entirely presently, I went back to it in 2015. I was working as an SEO specialist at an engineering company and I I had quit Portos Ascension again at this point. I was like, screw it. It's not making money. I need to do what my parents say. I need to like just freaking work a regular job. And then I had an idea. What? Well, the reason why I'm not making any money from this and not being able to live and survive is because I'm doing all these events in person. I got to pay for venues. I got to pay for gas. I got to pay for speakers coming out. What if I just did it online? And I eliminated all overhead costs. So in 2015, I did my first webinar and I've already done hundreds of live events. And the headliner was Dolores Cannon at this one is called the Starseed Summit. Hundreds of people signed up. So many people signed up. I was able to quit my job the next day. I quit my job. I was doing an event every single month and uh, a conference physics of the universe, like with Dan Winter and uh, Jamie Janover, who's the emissary of Nassim Haramein, uh, the Ascension Conference, the Starseed Summit, the True World History Conference, you know, every month. After about six months, this is the most in detail I've told anybody. I've, <laughs> after about six months, I started getting requests from speakers to do solo workshops for them. So I was doing one conference a month and a solo workshop of them just only. And then after, um, up until 2017, so that's two years, I started doing all over amount, almost 110 events a year as of 2018. And now I have over 10,000 hours of presentations. We do around 110 events a year, including a podcast. And then we do a bunch of free events on top of that. And between then I've done other international tours. I do all of Stephen Greer's events. I don't know if you know him. I do all of Michael Tellinger's events. I do all of James Redfield's events. Who's the guy who wrote Celestine Prophecy. So I've become a full on event production company for consciousness and also in huge organizations and huge conferences have given all production over to me. So I produce entire events for others live online. When COVID hit many conferences that were live, came to me because I'd already been doing this for years and I just took over production and white labeled my services and continued creating their events. So the 110 events are under my umbrella, but on top of that, there's another 30, sometimes up to 50 other events that I'm doing with people and supporting other organizations. And now we're just this huge like content creating platform that is just putting out awareness and going really deep into specific topics and just creating this for the world, man. I love it. It's, you know, right in line with what I'm venturing to do with Alt Media United. And that's why I asked you how you found out about me, because I talked about 
this on several different podcasts and I just my suspicion was maybe you you heard about mm-hmm. at least maybe what I said because you know it's synchronistically right in line with what's going on in my mind which I don't expect you to have read my mind but either way <laughs> it's synchronicity and I'm glad you're here brother because that's yeah. exciting I think there's plenty of podcasters that I'm in touch with that would love to have you on and uh, yeah, I definitely want to check out your podcast. I, I definitely, I'm wondering. So when it comes to aliens, right? We talked yeah. a little bit about this. You're you're in, you know, coots with all these heavyweights. You know, what what's your best guess on aliens? Is there some, because, you know, we've talked to several different people about this. And a lot of people seem to think that it's an interdimensional phenomena. And that's not to say that they don't exist in another space in this universe. But I think when it comes to like this traveling, like the traveling, like there's a big uh, divide I've sensed, right? There's some people who say they're coming here in, you know, bolts, nuts and bolts crafts. And then others are saying they're kind of emanating through some portal or or another dimension even. What's your best guess on that debate? I think that they all could exist. I don't think that there would be as simple as nuts and bolts, but it could be using some sort of metallic, you know, some, some sort of material that's not even on a periodic table. Cause we know on a periodic table, we even have spaces for the, the elements that we know probably exist, but we haven't even found yet. That's how advanced we're getting with our science. So they could be like more malleable kinds of material. For example, the Roswell crash was a very like, if you look into any of the researches on that, you talk about the metallic substance and how it was really unique and, and it wasn't from any element that was on earth, but it was still kind of like a craft, right? So I think a lot of different forms exist. Now, when I first got into all this awareness, I was already into dimensions from the beginning. I was into Arcturian information, Syrian, Palladian, all that stuff. First of all, those are very generic terms because there's probably hundreds of races that live within those areas. But as I was learning them, I was like, oh, six dimensional Arcturian, this being seventh dimensional, this. So extraterrestrials from the beginning was always interdimensional for me. I never ever had a thought of it being in this third dimensional universe. What, and I think most ETs and even like the Ascension thing, the whole concept of Ascension is when the earth shifts into the fifth dimension, there's going to be life throughout our solar system that is living on these planets because they're able to survive because they don't have to be within the Goldilocks zone, which is only a third and fourth dimensional reality that you need in the third and fourth dimensional reality. You are victim to the elements in the fifth dimensional reality. You may, you master control of your solar system's energy. You're not able to be destroyed from certain things that happen in the solar system. The galactic weather could still affect you. Right. And then you go into a higher dimension, you get power off the central sun, which is the black hole. And then you can't even be affected by that. So it's all then I'm actually glad you said that because a lot of people, when I say aliens, extraterrestrials, they're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. it's more like an interdimensional thing. <laughs> like, like that's all I'm exaggerating, but I'm, I'm really not, you know, I'm like, and they're like almost like spiritual superiority over me because they've just like caught me in saying something wrong, but it's always been interdimensional for me. You know, that these beings probably come here from portals or um, are able to shift, like, because you can get to a state of consciousness where you're able to see all things as vibration frequency and just dematerialize in one area and just rematerialize in another area based on points in space and time. That's definitely a technology that exists as well. So 
I think there are beings that probably exist in this third dimension. I go with Nassim Harriman's information and a couple other whistleblowers that say within our galaxy that there's other third dimensional, there's 13 other third dimensional planets like Earth, but chances are all of them don't even have the technology to come here. So all the ETs that come here, if not, if not all of them, some of them, if not all of them probably use or are from other dimensions. And even when you talk about the Syrians and the Pleiadians and the Lyrans, which could have been responsible for the original seeding of earth, even the stories of the galactic origins talks about them coming from other dimensions and going lower and lower in dimension until they finally got into our reality and created us in order to be able to incarnate themselves into, to get the experience of this dimension. So all the stories to me really are interdimensional in nature. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, I, I'm definitely in the same camp. I think it's kind of interesting when you do face people with that sort of spiritual superiority. I sort of get that sense from some channelers when they claim, and I'm glad you also pointed out how those are general terms like Pleiadian and like, these are large groups of people, not like, like an X-Men group of like aliens hanging out on the fringe, you know, I, and this is kind of leading me into a question I wanted to ask you, like, we have this idea from Star Trek, right. Of like the non-interventional, how true is that in your uh, experience over the course of your research on this subject? Do you think that there are beings who uh, uphold that sort of non-interventional thing, or is that just all, you know, made up somehow? Well, firstly, Gene Roddenberry went to channeling events and this documented and other people, he went to MUFON events. He got a lot of his research from experiences. He went to support groups, abductee, contactee groups. That's where he got it all from. And maybe not all of it, some of it was probably creative as well, but he got a lot of his research from there. And yeah, I feel there's definitely a lot of non-interference. And this goes into what Dolores Cannon said, that when the first nuclear bomb went off, if you look at the the timeline of human population, there was a huge sprout right after the atomic um, bomb testing in 45, the first test. And w- what she says happened through regressing people, she wasn't into ET spirituality, anything. She was regressing people. And all of a sudden she was going to the extraterrestrial lives was that when the first nuclear bomb went out, there was a call out to the universe. All these people were saying the same thing. There was a call out to the universe that these, when nuclear war, and here's another tangent. If you type in on, on the search engine, UFOs and nuclear bases, you can find a lot of information. The reason why the military and the Pentagon is so, why, why do you think the military and the Pentagon are the ones that are behind all of this? Because they're finding all of these craft at their military outposts and they're saying like, whoa, what are they trying to do? Disarm us? They're trying to take us out? You know, the useful idiots, if you will, are saying that because the other ones probably know what's up, right? right. So like, so what happened is that nuclear, what, what happens with the nuclear bomb? You split the atom, you split quantum reality. You're able to affect other dimensions. We're a holographic projection of consciousness. We are literally breaking the computer programming and leaking into the real world. And as this happening, other beings are being affected from it. So what occurred from Dolores Cannon's research, and I can't stress enough that she was not into this. She just, all of a sudden people just started telling her this and all of them were saying it because she had a technique that was taking people to the ET lives and their life between lives. Right. And the beings were saying to her that there was a call out to the universe around 45 that said, these, these people on earth 
are about to mess with the whole universe or galaxy or whatever, that we need volunteers to come down to earth to help change this. There was the law of non-interference. The law of non-interference meant they couldn't do it while they were extraterrestrial. The only way they could do it is by incarnating into human bodies, coming through the earth portal, being born here, and then making change from this world. So jump forward 20 years from 45, what do you have? 65, what do you have? The hippies, right? There were the first wave of indigos. And then we have two other waves that came after that. And then after that, we have the crystalline people that were born after 2001. And these are all different DNA codes that are within us basically to bring down this awareness in order to shift. So yeah, that's just two examples of the law of non-interference. But I feel that part of this free will mentality is us trying to figure out how to do it on our own. But one thing is for sure, they do not want us to destroy ourselves. So sometimes nuclear codes are scrambled. Sometimes water is miraculously cleaned up so that a whole bunch of ecological life doesn't die. You know, every now and then things happen like that to support us in not destroying ourselves because some people say that this has actually happened before and we did destroy ourselves. But at this point, we are, as I said earlier, we are a library of all these DNAs from all over the universe. They don't just not want us to destroy ourselves from some sort of self-preserving thing. They don't want us to destroy ourselves because we are related to them. We are their family. We, they've donated to our experience on Earth. So the only way to shift this is by incarnating here and making change. And that's why I feel we're having this awakening right now is all these beings are incarnating to assist in this process. Absolutely. And I'm... Um... I'm right there with you. And, you know, for those who might be hesitating, I think, you know, big red flag when you wade into this topic are all of these encounters that seem to be, you know, non-consensual or not in alignment with free will, you know. So in your opinion, you know, from your research, what is there to be said about, you know, these harmful ETs, you know, in the case of like mm -hmm. some greys and even reptilians? I mean, I have a, a sort of anecdote that I you hinted at before a person who became a mentor of mine at a really young age around the time I was in college I was smoking weed and hanging out with this Native American guy who was like three times my age and you know we just met at this park and one of the things he told me among many others was that when he had a peyote experience the same ritualized way his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather had it he had a uh, connection with a entity that he described as a female reptilian who was underground underneath the sweat lodge where they did this ceremony. And he said that, you know, this is the same entity that his grandfather met with. It's the same entity that his great grandfather met with. And it w sounded to me like it was a, you know, a beneficial relationship, which was kind of interesting at the time because the only person I had heard talk about reptilians up until then was David Icke, and he definitely doesn't paint them in a good light. So what are your thoughts on these so-called malevolent ETs? So firstly, the, let's go back to the galactic origins of humanity. There's a place called the Lyran constellation, and there's a prism of Lyra that humanoids came in, and we inhabited the Lyran constellation at first, we look very feline. When we came into, uh, we had feline-like faces and features, much like the Egyptian feline-faced humanoids, right? That probably were Lyrans or Hathors because they also are from Venus but had that look as well. 
that whole galaxy was a reptilian galaxy before humans came about. It was, there were dragon beings, reptilians everywhere. The whole reptilian human combat and issue occurred from the humans manipulating reptilian DNA without their approval, creating this huge issue in the Orion's belt that ended up creating humans and reptilians against other humans, and reptilians. It wasn't reptilians against humans. It was negatively energized humans, and reptilians polarized and positively and polarized humans, and reptilians fighting against each other. It wasn't just a war against one or the other. The positive reptilian beings love to be called serpentine beings. And you can look throughout a lot of ancient texts, Naga people, the, the, in India, the snakes behind Vishnu, they're all reptilians. They were positive. Even, even Rama's brother, Lakshman was one of the reptilians incarnating the human form to help him get rid of evil on earth. So we see that. Then we have the Kundalini energy with the reptilian energy. And then we have the slaying of the dragon in the West that was slaying the Kundalini because they were trying to stop from the alignment, right? So we have all this symbolism, but we see both polarities here. So now when it comes to abduction experiences, reptilian experiences, gray experiences, negative ET experiences, there's two trains of thought. There's one that says that we we came up with these soul contracts before we incarnated. When before we incarnated, we knew everything that was going to happen because we exist in a realm of no time. Part of that was the agreement to have these really negative experiences because the only thing source wanted was to experience. So we came up with all types of plans to experience a range of things, including being hugely victimized and taken advantage of and traumatized. So, and definitely with the gray aliens, many people speak about this, even channelers and beyond speak about that. We had these soul contracts with them to basically manipulate us to extract DNA, to abduct us, to mess with our sexual organs. And a lot of times they're doing it for actually things that happen to be positive for them, which is hybridizing themselves with the DNA so that they can create a perfect incarnation that they can go into and have an experience of ascension because they've basically gone to a place of non-emotions, non-feeling our emotional state. The human body is beautiful because we're able to have such a full range of experience and emotions. Part of that allows us to have this ascension experience that is multidimensional. Maybe even we can be 12th dimensional beings on earth, which is a whole hour podcast on its own. Just talk about why I even said that, you know? So like, uh, so what they're doing is actually something that in the grand scheme of it all is benefiting an entire race. This is just one, there's multiple hybridization programs. And then there's hybridization programs that have an agreement with the U.S. government, like a mantis race that has an agreement with the U.S. government in order to be able to extract our DNA and have abduction experiences that might be doing things for nefarious reasons, even though most of the mantis beings that people connect with are really benevolent and are really ancient. It's interesting so, that among all the things that the federal government does to destroy nature, they made it illegal to kill praying mantises. So that is very, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but it's a federal <laughs> law that you are not allowed to kill praying mantises, at least Whoa, in some, and it, I think it's a state law too. <laughs> yeah. Dude. So the two trains of thought is, are that either it's just all soul contracts and Everything that happens to us isn't something that happens out of the blue. It's just that we have amnesia. We forgot we came up with these things. And that goes to the whole thing of when people used to say, they might still say it, that your higher self is laughing at you. You know, not, not in a mocking way, but like, you're like, oh my God, life sucks, life sucks. And the higher self is like, wow, I love these experiences. You know, because ultimately the higher self, it just wants to experience itself and it unconditionally accepts everything. 
And then there's the others that say, no, we exist in the realm of free will, and these beings are violating free will, but that goes against the whole concept that you aren't able to violate free will. So, and honestly, because I'm not in a, uh, like a 12 dimensional line being, I can tell you, but these are the different possibilities. And as we ascend higher and higher in dimension, and I don't even like the word higher, as we become more harmonic in frequency, every dimension that we tap into is a realm of information and data that we were previously blocked off from. So as we get to these dimensions, these kind of answers are going to be, we're going to get to them. But so the thing is that I see is people choose one or the other with, with the awareness that you can't truly know which one it is. So the reason why you choose it is based on your personal emotional state of being and your own traumas. No, I've been hurt too much in my life and these beings are doing this to me. So no, I don't accept it. It's not, they are violating my free will. You don't really know. You're just saying that based on your experience or you're super spiritual and you think everything happens for a reason. So you're just like, oh wait, no, everything happens for a reason. So yes, this is happening to me because it all just happens the way it's supposed to. That's coming from another polarity. If you really want to be rational, you will talk about both of them equally and say, I don't know. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is quite the quandary, but that's why we have you here, brother. And so far, so good. We've been blazing through all sorts of topics. I think this is, <laughs> is a, a must listen for any ancient aliens fan and you are uh, well acquainted with a lot of those guys. So it fits. Now you mentioned you're out there in Peru, one of the structures... Oh, in, uh, no, in Yucatan, in Mexico. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, so you're in my area. So, well, I still want to stick with this point, and I'm not sure if you've ever been to Peru, but we did talk about Peru yeah. quite a bit, so that's probably how I conflated the two. But Sacsayhuaman has always stood out as, you know, kind of unique amongst all the megaliths, right? For those who aren't mm -hmm. familiar, it's the one that, you know, the blocks are so well fit together that you can't even stick a piece of paper in between them, you know? Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? And, and do you think that there is evidence in some of these megalithic sites for one of these cataclysms that we talked about, not just, you know, the flood cataclysm, but others, maybe something that would have the energy to melt stone in that way? Yeah, so, and yeah, I was in Peru because the graveyard I went to and all that was about when I was in Peru. And I was I was touring with Brian Forrester and I was at Paracas. I lived, I stayed in Paracas for like 10 days. I went to the museum, studied the skulls and all that. And so for those, what I'm leaning towards now is that they had some sort of technology to melt rock or to make rock become very malleable, that they could stick it together and then and then make it solid again. Cause those were created as walls. They weren't like, it wasn't like there was something else and they got melted together because the way they are is also in a pattern. It's not just like something happened, they melted together and now they're like that. Mm. It seems like it's put in a way that was utilized by them to create these walls. So almost like a systematic, kind of, like building, like, like they had like a, yeah. a machine doing it almost. Right. Or their consciousness even, wow. cause you can't even put a hair through it. You can't even put a hair through it, you know? So Chances are that, and there's many people speaking about that, the same theory now that it was like a bunch of rocks that they had, they had some sort of technology in order to make it more malleable. They pieced it together. They solidified it. Boom. There you have it. Now as evidence for cataclysm, and I have to go back to Brian Forrester again, 
Um, he has a video on YouTube called the red pyramid where he was in the red pyramid. And there is an evidence of an explosion that took place inside the red pyramid. And it looks like it could have happened around 13,000 years ago, which was the end was, was the middle point of the golden age, which was the beginning of the devolution of consciousness, which was also the last time when Atlantis was actually falling. So some sort of thing occurred that helped made the pyramids overpower and possibly have an explosion within it. And there's a huge crack. And with like, smoldered marks around it that shows that something exploded and cracked the side of the pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you really look at all the alignments, whether it be in alignment with a constellation or even in alignment with other sites across the earth, you know, it's pretty clear that these structures were dealing with a great bit of energy in some way, whether it was just yeah. when they were built or even through their function. I mean, there's a lot of theories yes. that the pyramids function in that way. But, you know, I 100%. definitely think that that's a conversation for another podcast, and I definitely would love to have you back on sooner than later. Tell the folks where they can follow up with everything that you're doing, from the podcast to the webinars to the events. Let us know how we can jump through the portal to Ascension. <laughs> yes. So the best thing to do, you know, I'll say like, if you really compelled to just search portal ascension and add everything you find, you'll find Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, which is um, doing pretty well. We have a lot of people on there, but ultimately if you want to choose one thing, go to our website, portal ascension.org, sign up right there and you get 3000 hours of free presentations, like a Netflix for consciousness, just by signing up pretty much every topic we covered here is within that. And then, you know, then we have 10,000 hours altogether because we have all these other paid events and some free ones. I just did a seven hour event called beyond UFO disclosures on our YouTube. I just did a eight hour world sound healing day event, which is sound healers all day. So we have a lot of stuff on YouTube, but it's also on our website and you know, YouTube has been trying to censor us lately and actually gave me a ban. I just got off the ban like a couple of days ago for a video on Ascension that they said that I had harassment and bullying on. So go to our website, sign up. Not only will you get a username and password where you can access our own standalone thing away from YouTube, but you will also get emails a couple of times a week on all our updates, all of our events. I'll just throw out some events that are coming up. We have the ancient Egypt and extraterrestrial connection conference coming up. We have extraterrestrial races, planets, and technology coming up. We just did the one on Sumer yesterday paranormal ancient paranormal ancient magic and folklore conference as well near-death experience conference and those are just conferences we have in between all of them we have three or four workshops with different speakers on everything from ancient history to spiritual tools to ascension work to extraterrestrials ufo disclosure so just sign up and you'll be connected to everything we're doing beautiful I love it. Thank you so much, Neil. And like I said, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you, uh, you join us again soon. And folks listening, jump through that portal to Ascension. Sounds like a great deal. I know Tara and I are definitely going to be checking that out. So folks, thank you for being here and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. gentlemen thank you for being here thank you for tuning in to the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast and 
What a fantastic conversation with Neil Guar. I'm recording this sometime after that conversation, uh, this being the extended outro. What up, everybody? All the lunatics that listen to the show, don't be offended. That's an affectionate term. It's a term of affection. And uh, if you use the promo code MFTIC88, you can get free shipping on any of our merch and let everybody know you are a full-blown lunatic. We have a shirt called Practical Lunacy 101. We got a bunch of other badass designs. Maybe you just want something simple that says my family thinks I'm crazy. We got that. Maybe you want something artistic drawn by great artists like Bags Draws. Follow them on Instagram at Bags Draws. Or maybe you want a really strange design design designed by your boy, yours truly, Mystic Mark. I've been playing around with this website called Night Cafe Studio. And thanks to our friend Thomas from Paranoid American. And I've been getting some really awesome results. If you notice the artwork in the recent episodes, that's where it comes from. It's a really, really interesting type of computer program that generates art with text phrases. I don't know how it works. I don't know the science behind it. But if you like art, if you like just playing around with computer programs, I definitely recommend you check it out, Night Cafe. And I made some really cool designs with Night Cafe and then edited them with Canva and made some badass T-shirts that I think look like the type of merch you would get from a 70s rock and roll band. But instead of rock and roll themes, it's podcast themes like Hollow Earth and Esoteric Brotherhoods and Secret Societies and Aliens and Sasquatch and all that stuff. So anyways, here we are in the extended outro. It's the month of March, and I, uh, I have some interesting news to share. On March 22nd, 2022... I will be giving a free tour of the secret society situation in New Haven. All the things I've learned about skull and bones. And the idea is to gravitate positive energy into the collective consciousness on this date that is significant to this group of people. And I hope that we can change the awareness in a subtle way so that more people more people are aware of what this group is up to. Um, but we're not releasing any information that you can't find already. But if you want to learn more, go over to HiresideMeetups.com and check it out. You can RSVP and let me know that you'll be there whether or not anyone shows up. My girlfriend and I will be there, and we will be distributing some comic books made by the Paranoid American. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. So definitely check that out. If you're in the New England area and you want to make the drive down to New Haven, we're going to walk around. We're going to check out the artwork, the buildings. We're going to talk about some of the symbolism 
and just have a good old time. Hang out in the park, maybe smoke a blunt. Definitely bring weed at your own discretion. And, uh, and yeah, it's going to be a good time. So looking forward to that this month. All kinds of good stuff in store. We have some really awesome guests coming out on the show soon, real soon. The next episode coming out is a banger to use Sam Tripoli's verbiage. And uh, that does it for today's episode with Neil Guar. Definitely check out his website, Portal to Ascension. See all the amazing people he's speaking with. A lot of the folks, as he said, in the ancient aliens community, uh, specifically from the TV show Ancient Aliens, and other people, some controversial people like Stephen Greer. Very interesting. Who knows? Maybe Neil will hook us up, get some of these interesting people on the show. Anyways, here I am in the now, hanging out. Just watching some Sam Hyde videos lately. He's funny. Definitely recommend people check out his latest documentary. Very funny stuff. What else we have going on? No new patrons. Sign up for the Patreon, folks. We got some activity going on on Rockfin. Thank you for everybody who's tuning in on Rockfin. Uh, But definitely support us on the Patreon, folks. Not only do you get 50-plus bonus episodes, probably way more than that at this point in time, um, you also get some video action, some old-school videos from the early days. We have a kung fu movie that I made myself, released for the patrons, for the supporters. We have all kinds of stuff. You get a spirit animal name. There are other podcasters who are part of the Patreon. Chance Garten, shout out to you. Donut, shout out to you. Alex Stein, Conspiracy Castle, shout out to you. Shane Newsom, shout out to you. So many great folks helping us out, supporting us on the Patreon. Ron from New England, can't forget him. And so many others. So many others. Matthew from the Oral Hygiene Podcast. Shout out to you, brother. Anyways, I'm just rambling here. So many interesting topics. I just talked to a really interesting guest before I recorded this extended outro. Uh, In the future... This Neil Guar episode happened sort of in the past from when this is being recorded. This is being recorded on the day of my grandmother's birthday. She just turned 93. Shout out to you, Meme. Happy birthday. And that's about it, folks. This is a Monday episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast during the month of March 2020. Merch 2020, baby. That's right. Go to our merch store and use the promo code MFTIC88 and get free shipping. And if you sign up for the Patreon, you have access to another discount code. So you can use both of those discount codes during the month of March and get a really sweet deal on some limited edition t-shirts. I don't know how long those t-shirts are even going to be up. Sometimes Teespring says that the content is too controversial and takes it off. So get it while it lasts, folks. Get it while it lasts. And if you want a sticker, just DM me. The stickers that Teespring are going to send you are not great. I probably should just take them down. But I have way better stickers. And if you just DM me, 
I'll send it to you for a very low price, just the price of shipping plus $2. So for $2 plus shipping, I can send you a My Family Thinks I'm Crazy sticker. Throw it on your laptop. Throw it on your phone. Put it on your bumper sticker. Put it on a a pole uh, at a place where you hang out. Put it on a bus stop bench. Who knows? Who knows? Put it on a local landmark. Wherever you want. That does it for today's episode with yours truly and Neil Guar. Oh, and we have a new episode out with Michael Wan. Be sure to go subscribe to my podcast that I do with Michael Wan. Susquehanna Alchemy is the name of the podcast. Your Handbook for the Apocalypse is the name of the show. We just put out episode 20. We got 19 episodes out. One of them is behind a paywall, episode 17. But episode 20 just came out, and episode 21 will be recorded very soon. So stay tuned to your handbook for the apocalypse. And that does it. Thank you so much for being here, and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Peace. about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.